checking on a book we were promised on Scribble. Welcome to Scribble, 30 minutes of conversation, comments, and reviews on reading and writing, editing, publishing, and selling books. I'm Rebecca Wee. And I'm Don Wooten. The last time we talked to John Don Lachey, he was working on a new book, our subject today on Scribble. You ever stop writing? Ah, <laughs> uh, do you? <laughs> yes, I stop every chance I get. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Yeah. Rebecca. Oh well, you know, it's kind of fun to be here. It's uh, you know, I I won't say it was a threat, but it was certain. <laughs> I have this new book that I'm working on, and I okay, okay, Dodd. <laughs> it's not working on the books that's tough. It's getting them published that's tough. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you have to get in your hands and needs sometimes. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true, but you know. I, have you ever written a poem? Uh, some lousy ones. Well, you know, you've written everything else I can think of, <laughs> except maybe an opera libretto. But you do plays, you do essays. I mean, when you were a judge, you used to write out decisions and so on. What is it with lawyers and judges? Uh, we talk to so many who are poets and authors. Well, Stuart Winstein used to say a license... Uh, an attorney has a license to talk. Yeah, and I thought that to, was pretty apt. But to write. <laughs> well, and talking can be like poetry, but it's also very different. So it seems like it's maybe another another angle of approach for someone who likes words or likes to figure out I think out it helps s- you think. Yeah. Sometimes you think things out as you write them. Oh, I yeah. I enjoy doing that very much. Yep. Well, <clears throat> I'm that way with giving talks. I never know what I'm going to say, and, and until I hear myself talk, I don't know what I think. Yeah. It's, uh, it's odd, but when you put things in words, it clarifies your thinking. Yeah, I, I think that's true. You're more fluent uh, in public speaking than I am. I don't think I'm bad, but I think you're exceptional. And I, I used to listen to you at the Genesius Guild and just marvel how you could string words together and never trip over them. Yeah. Well, well that's the public figure part of you, too, I suppose. When there's an audience there waiting for something, you, you rise to the occasion. I've always thought of that as a character flaw. <laughs> Because I deal with people in groups with no problem. Give me an audience of any kind and fine. But one-on-one, I'm not always that successful. That's pretty common, though, I think. You know, if you think of... Yeah, I think think the whole... Maybe you have more distance in a way when you've got a whole group of people. It's more people listening to you, but you don't have to get into the... What, the personal stuff, the nitty-gritty? You know, you've got a group of people. Um, but, yeah, sitting with one person, you have to... I've often said that giving a talk, sometimes that moment comes when the audience becomes super quiet. And you think, oh, my Lord, they're listening. Yeah. What am I saying? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you know, I've gone to a number of uh, assisted living centers trying to promote my books lately. Uh-huh. And I always worry about how I'm going to do, but I always seem to be able to say what I want to say when I get in front of them. Yeah. And it comes out pretty well. Sure, I stumble here and there a little bit, but not much. Yeah. I think teaching is like that. And my grandfather, who was a Lutheran pastor, talked about how he, every Saturday night, thought, I can't do it. I don't have, I'm not going to be able to say anything. I don't know what to do. And he'd get out there and it would sound like it was easy, you know, and it was so. Well, sometimes it's tough. Uh, When I worked at WHBF, I did all of the ascertainment for the station. We were supposed to go out and talk to community leaders and find out what they thought the world's problems were, and we'd come back and do programming about it, which was a fiction, but (laughs) it had to be done. You had to submit these things. I remember once I agreed to come talk to a small group of people somewhere south of here, a little, little building somewhere next to a big stadium. So I went there, and there were these uh, dozen people, and I thought, okay. And then they said, well, let's go. I said, let's go where? <laughs> says, over to the stadium. What? I went over, and the stadium was filled with people. <laughs> I thought, what am I doing Waiting here? for you? <laughs> yeah. They were all waiting? I was just there to ask, what do you think are the community's problems? <laughs> <laughs> They were expecting me to give a talk. Oh, no. What'd you do? I have no idea. I have no idea. I would bet he gave a talk. And probably a really fluent and uh, lovely one that everyone was impressed by. I I guess so. I got, I got away with it. They applauded. But, you know, sometimes writing becomes a labor of love. Oh. In, in yeah. writing these books, sometimes I'll start out with a story by somebody telling me about their memories of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And they're very, very timber and cornfield. Yeah. They're telling me what their house was like. They're telling me how they plot the cornfield. And then I'll type up what they've told me, and I'll send it to them and ask them if you have any additions or corrections. And the next thing I know, they're on the phone with me, and they're saying, I also remember this. Yes, C- yeah. Can you put it in? I say, sure. Absolutely. And it's, it's in that way that the stories get from the commonplace yeah. and the prosaic into something that's really human and, and, and with feeling. And that requires both you as the writer and a listener as an audience, even if also they are giving you some ideas and information. But we don't we don't write just in a void usually. Or if you write in a, in a void, eventually you want someone to hear. It doesn't always work that way. I mean, sometimes you type up their story and send it to them. You don't hear anything. Yeah. And the next time you begin getting phone calls, there's a woman in this book named Dorothy Denkoff, who I did not know. She was a, a member of my parish, but by the time I contacted her, she was at an assisted living center out in Iowa. And she tells an unusual story about life in downtown uh, Moline when she was a little girl. Her parents huh. were divorced. And during the summer, her dad would bring her into the Leclerc Hotel where he had a permanent room. Okay. And she she describes downtown Moline as it was in those days, the theaters and sure. everything. She talks about how her dad used the theaters as his babysitting service because he had a, oh, yeah. a car business, an automobile business, right next to the old Paradise Theater, which I was gone by the time I got here. Yeah. But 
I learned a lot about downtown Moline from Mrs. Dinkoff, and uh, Dorothy would call me up. Uh, she didn't like to write. She uh, she. She didn't like to write, but she would after she called me up and told me she would, and uh, she did. And I must have talked to her five or six times before she passed away and uh, yeah. kept so, adding to the story. So this is the book that you just finished. This is the book I just finished. And so, I've got a, I'm working on another one, the last oh, one. Oh, no, stop <laughs> Not that. yet. The last we're one. Working, we're I working need, on this one right I now. I need about three more stories to finish the last one. You know, the, the thing is that... Uh, uh, whatever you say goes into the air and into people's sometimes faulty memory. Mm-hmm. Oh, but yeah. when you write something, people can read it and they can read it again and again and years later and you're stuck with it. <laughs> yeah, but I kind of like that. I I don't. <laughs> I like making stories of people's lives in making them permanent so that once they pass away, they're still around. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many great lives nobody knows about. Oh, of course. Yeah. Except, so so tell the title and where can people get this and then we need to hear some of it. Well, the story uh, is pretty much the same as the first book, but the first one was called Memories of the Great Depression, a yeah. Time Forgotten. This one, I just changed one word, Memories of the Great Depression, a Time Remembered. Mm-hmm. And it was published by Crosslakes, the same publisher who, who did the first one for me. Okay. Uh, and obviously it can be obtained at, at Amazon.com. Everything can be obtained yeah. there these days. But it's available at Barnes & Noble. The publisher makes it available to most of the large publishers. Okay. And uh, Well, read some of this. Give us an idea what's in this book. Well, let me give you... I. I Got some excerpts here that I think are short and kind of to the point. There's a fellow named Donald D. Beck, and his story is about medical care during the Great Depression. And I think it basically shows anybody who reads the story that there have been some advances in medical care in the last 90 years. Oh, yeah. Donald Beck says, we lived in a small town in southeast Kansas. I can't recall the name of the town. In any event, I outlived the town. But when I was about five, I became ill. There was no nearby hospital, so the doctor came to our house. I can't recall his name. He determined that I had pleural pneumonia. He operated on me right on our kitchen table and inserted a rubber tube in my side to drain the lung. After a period of time when the drainage was ceasing, he pulled it out and put bandages over it. We then moved to another town, so my parents had to change the bandages once a day. One day, I was playing under our kitchen table and I bumped my side and it really hurt. That night, when Dad changed my bandages, he saw some. It was part of the rubber hose that had broken off when the doctor pulled it out of my side. My dad pulled it out and put bandages on it, and it healed up. But where the hole had been, I ended up with what looked like an upside-down mountain. Now, there were no antibiotics or other miracle drugs in those days, so I was probably lucky to survive. I think that's a great little story. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, it's not atypical. Right. I remember once, uh, I've talked about it in another context, but I got an earache. 
was really killing me, the doctor came to our house. Were you a kid? Yeah, when I was a kid, uh, six years old, laid me on my side and lanced my ear. Boy, did that hurt. And uh, lanced and drained, and by evening it was in pretty good shape. (laughs) But doctors came to your house in those days. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the... People who told me the story <clears throat> mentions that very prominently. A woman named Marilyn Anderson, even after the war, uh-huh. uh, doctors still came and made house calls. Uh-huh. Uh, on the other hand, the Willie McAdams, who lives here in Moline, uh, uh, tells the story of how when he was a boy, my dad had two remedies if we got sick. The first consisted of a bag of stewed onions spread across the patient's chest. And the second was a spoonful of kerosene sweetened with sugar. <laughs> oh. oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> and he survived. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it wasn't always that bad, I, but it, it wasn't great. Uh, <laughs> Catherine Katie Folks uh, tells of working here in uh, Rock Island during, or ha- having her mother work in Rock Island during yeah. the Depression. And she worked for Dr. A. Henry Arp and his son, Louis. And she says, they did surgery right in the office. They did everything in that office. They even did early x-rays, and everybody got a bit exposed. Oh, sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh-huh. you know, there yes. used to be those x-rays in shoe stores. I was just thinking of that. Go in and look yep. at your foot. You go step on it like a like a scale to weigh yourself, but you could see your bones. Yeah. We thought it was neat. We didn't uh-huh. realize it was dangerous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, aren't there stories too? I don't know what the time period would be, but in small towns in Midwest, one of the things the kids would do was chase the the trucks that were um, spraying. <laughs> It, it, they were spraying to kill, I don't know what, mosquitoes or, you know, and big clouds of... I don't have any stories like that. Oh, there's a... I can't remember the title of it, but uh, there's someone who actually wrote a collection of poems about chasing the pesticide trucks and playing in the, <laughs> what playing they do in the t- clouds. What, what they do talk about is uh, chasing the ice trucks. Oh. When the big ice trucks used to ca- come for... Uh, delivery of ice to the ice boxes. There were no refrigerators in those days. Uh, the guy would get a big chunk of ice out of the back, and he'd have to carve it down to the size the person wanted. Uh-huh. There'd be a little sign in the, sure. the patron's window, 25, 50, 75, or 100 pounds. Yeah, wow. and I remember those. And he'd chisel off the big hunk, off the big hunk, a smaller hunk, and he'd get smaller slivers. Yeah. And during the Depression... Many stories are about how the kids just waited for him to come so they could get the slivers of the ice during the hot summer. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember the ice box with a big kind of locking handle on it and so mm-hmm. on. But uh, it is amazing how things have changed, and the, the I think the big change was the Second World War, because there's nothing like a war. To accelerate change. And everything really did. We got wonder drugs then. We got all kinds of conveniences. And Mm -hmm. uh, when people go to war, they get busy. And uh, cost is no uh, uh, obstacle at all. Anything you need, the government will pay for Mm -hmm. to get it done. It's just amazing. And 
the world was different after the Second World War. Yeah. I mean, it really was. I remember that mm-hmm. clearly. The one thing you notice as you take the stories is how the people took care of themselves. And what, by that, I mean their families took care of them. Their yeah. extended families took care of them. They yeah. helped their neighbors when the neighbors were in a real problem. Yeah. If, if a farmer became ill and couldn't do his fields or died, yeah. the neighbors would come They'd in with come. their tractors yep. and take care of the crops for him while yep. he was down or till the family could get somebody to replace him. Well, I, was... I thought that was the biggest social change that I noticed because before the Second World War, there were a lot of three-generation homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, grandparents and grandchildren, as I've said, got along because they had a common enemy, the parents. <laughs> but the fact is you had houses like that all over the place. After the Second World War, we started dividing ourselves into senior citizens, the adults, and little leagues. Hmm. All of a sudden, we began to divide. And it was not the same as before the war. A number of the people say that when calamity strikes, that's when people pull together. Oh, yeah. Whether it's a depression or war. And then once things start to get good again, everybody starts going in their own direction, taking care of their own needs. Yeah. I know we used to collect not only paper and metal, but grease, for Mm -hmm. Pete's sake. We would collect grease for the war effort. I don't know what they used it for, but we collected it. <laughs> and they collected goose grease and used it kind of like Vicks Vapor Rub. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Read us uh, another of yeah, your uh, little... Yeah, some more uh, stories. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating what Isn't you it? come up with, Don. What's amazing to me is when you look back at it, we're further away from the Depression right now than the people who were around at the beginning of the Depression were from the Civil War. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Willie McAdams, who I mentioned before, if I could, uh, where did I put my book? Here it is. Yep. Willie McAdams talks about the fact that his great grandfather was a slave. He talks yeah. about how his great grandfather was born in 1852. Oh. And then he saw his mother sold at an auction in 1861. Uh, Uh, Willie talks about how after they came to Moline, there weren't many black people at first, and when they began doing religious services, they were in the homes, kind of like at Mm -hmm. the time of Acts of the Apostles. And then they bought a little church uh, in Moline and moved it up to the area of about uh, 15th Street and 26th Avenue, and then eventually replaced that. And he talks about how the old deacons would come in, and they would be dressed in their black with their spats. And he wasn't sure what those were when he saw them. You know, the little things that covered the shoes with the buttons on. Uh-huh. And he talks about the baptisms that took place in the church. The, the minister would walk up the aisle all dressed in black with his black suit and his hip boots. Uh-huh. And he would, as he was walking up, the deacons would, behind the pulpit, pull off the floorboards that expose the, the, the baptismal waters oh, okay. in a tub underneath. So it and, was actually the whole 
dipping, not, oh, yeah. just, not just putting Willie water on your head. talks about when they got in the water, the minister would put his hand behind the man's neck or back and take him back and pinch his nostrils so and like, submerge yeah. the whole person. Oh, yeah. And he, he says when they finally got around to doing it to him, he was a big guy, and he says, I nearly pulled the minister under. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that was a source of great acrimonious religious division, whether you dunked or sprinkled for baptism. Uh (laughs) I thought, that's got to be the silliest thing I've ever heard, but boy, was it serious. (laughs) Dunk or sprinkle. Dunk or sprinkle. uh, I remember watching black congregations in Greenwood, Mississippi, being baptized in the Yazoo River. I wouldn't step in that river for anything. It looked like chocolate to me. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, the things you can recall from those days are just amazing. Give us some more. Well, let's see who I want to talk about. Uh, Dorothy Dinkoff is, a, is an interesting character. Okay. Uh, she, she was a woman I talked about before, but she talks about coming home from school one day. She was hungry, uh, probably around first grade. And she went in the icebox and got a hot dog. And before very long, uh, she was really sick. Apparently she got tobane poisoning or something. Uh And you know, just nothing to treat her, basically just staying there and hoping for the best. Uh There are other stories, and this one I heard from my own family. When my maternal grandmother died during the flu epidemic of 1919, she was pregnant with uh, her second set of twins. They would have been children 13 and 14. And to save these children, they took them and put them in a pan on the old wood stove to keep them warm. And I've run into that two or three times lately in taking these stories. On one occasion, the storyteller said they put me in a pan and somehow I survived. In one of the other stories, they talk about putting two twins in a pan and one surviving and the other not. He said it was very, very difficult uh, with oh. the lack of heat, you know, to yeah. take care of the, the premature children at that time. Yeah, I saw an interesting example of twins' survival. Uh, twins were born, and one was in really bad shape. They put them in separate cribs. And for some reason, the nurse decided to put the healthy one in with the sick one. And the healthy one put its arm around the other. Yeah. And the others started to improve, <laughs> and they both survived. How they had been in the womb, probably, well, they, yeah, and because, yeah, yeah I, it's the I don't familiar. know. <laughs> There's well, fascinating all, stories. All the study of human touch and how how that, yeah, can be literally healing, that would be a great example. And on the other hand, the human voice could do it. One of the storytellers in the book is a nun. Uh, she's up in Milwaukee, and uh, she tells of how she became a nun. She went to a, a Gene Autry movie, <laughs> and uh, she heard him saying goodbye to the woman as he sang south of the border. And she, yeah. the woman in the veil and the candlelight, oh, she, yeah. she wanted to be one. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What, what's interesting about the book is— I remember that movie. I remember that movie. <laughs> What's interesting about the book is so many people have told me it ought to be mandatory reading for young people in the schools because they don't appreciate the lives that their fathers and led to, yeah. their grandfathers led to, and grandmothers to, to 
yeah. get them to where they are. You know, these people, uh, the women would be at a farm, and for a week at a time, they would never see anybody. Yeah. Uh, Kay, Catherine, uh, Kay uh, Conway Corrigan tells a story of how her mother on Sundays would go to church, and that would be her social time. Yeah. The Catholics of those days had the fast, yeah. so... The mass would be maybe at 11 o'clock. Everybody would be starving, and her mother would be there chatting away with all the other women <laughs> in the church. Well, the reason was obvious. They never saw anybody but family right. through the course of the week. Yep. Yeah, and yeah, that's true. You could really be isolated on a farm. On mm-hmm. a farm, yeah. It's, uh, what prompted you to start writing stuff like this? I don't know. Oh, uh, there's an honest no? I came out of court one day. And something had happened in court, and I said to my bailiff, Jim Gartellis, I said, Jim, I really wish I had gotten my mother and father's stories of the Great Depression down on tape. Hmm. And Jim said to me, I got one. And he was 81 at the time. I, I said, well, we got 20 minutes, and I got a tape recorder. Are you available? And that was the beginning. And I began huh. taking the stories from the older bailiffs. And... Uh, Somewhere along the line, I got busy and quit doing it for a number of years. And then around 2014, 2015, I began doing it in earnest again. And it's become a labor of love. I, sure. I really enjoy doing it. And I especially enjoy it when somebody keeps calling me up and saying, I got more for I you. I got one more. Yeah. 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 yeah, you called me on that, too. Yep. And I, uh, my memories are so fragmentary, I decided I, there really wasn't much I could contribute well, you put it in writing, so I used basically what you gave me and misspelled sure. your name. Yeah. yeah. I think we've got that fixed, however, now, because I <laughs> they misspelled his name at one place. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, you you got yourself a, a project that can, will, can occupy you to the end of your life. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. I'm working on a whole bunch of different things. I. I've got one version of the scriptural Stations of the Cross in the works. This is pretty much done, where I try and do a version of the Stations based on Matthew's Gospel, then another on Mark's, another on Luke's, and another on John's. Uh-huh. And I, I rather like what I, I've done, but one publisher didn't. So that's, oh. yeah, But that's life. One person. And then I've got a book that I'm very proud of that's a history of uh, the jury trial. From the humidities on. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah. And How I about your plays? Haven't done much with them lately. I, I've just worked on books. I've been, got four in process right now, basically. I got the third volume of uh, Memories of the Great Depression, which will be the last, because it's just getting impossible to get to see people. They're too old. You know? Oh, yeah. Mm. That's true. I mean, we're fading away. Yeah. It's amazing to think how much time has been since my birth in 29 up to now. Boy, that's a lot of years. Yep. I did a little research just on how long the veterans of the Civil War lasted. There were 65 alive in 1950, they think, and five alive five years later. There's a wow. single survivor of Pearl Harbor alive yet. They, they go mm. fast as, yeah, as they get older. Uh, Time has its way with us, Don. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you better hurry. And, <laughs> and that's why we have to have the rec- written record. I mean, the yeah. oral records disappear. No. Yeah, that's true. But uh, it's interesting that you've chosen to do this, and uh, I really think it's fascinating because it awakens your own memories of those yeah, days. Yeah, it does. It really does. 
And uh, I remember learning to drive at the age of 13 in mm-hmm. Greenwood, Mississippi, because laws were pretty lax in those days. <laughs> well, and you needed to help. You know, that was my mom, too, just well, saying. Well, Kate Conway Gorgon talks about how, as I said, the wives were isolated, but then her mother got a driver's license, yeah, and she yeah. became a club lady in Alito and helped found the Blue Cross down there. Uh-huh. Well, Don, I am grateful you've come back and told us more about your project, and uh, keep at it. Because uh, what's the name of the book? Memories of the Great Depression, A Time Remembered. Okay, and that's the second one. So look out. I'm sure a third one's coming. Well, they can simply find that on (laughs) on Amazon simply by typing in John Don Lachey in the search bar that Amazon provides them. Okay. That's the easiest way. And that'll do it for now. I'm Don Wooten with Rebecca Wee. We'll be back next week for another Scribble, and hope you will too. 